Hey, it's Greg Brady, guest hosting for Bill Kelly this week. Welcome to the Bill Kelly Podcast. A lot to talk about after a busy weekend of news, and we started with the leader of the official opposition in Ontario. Andrea Horvath will join me, and we'll talk about the outdoor restrictions. She's hoping to get pushed aside as the NDP and Liberals and the Independents will attempt to convince enough Conservatives to lift outdoor restrictions before the stay-at-home order ends on June 2nd. She joins me there. Bruce Arthur from the Toronto Star on a couple issues, specifically vaccines. What to do if you've had that first AstraZeneca dose and you're waiting on a second? Right now, it looks like you might be waiting quite a while. Bruce Arthur will join us to talk about that. And, of course, 18-plus get uh, vaccinations. Is that the right move, or should we be double-dosing our seniors and more vulnerable? We'll end up talking to Oral Braun about the Middle East and the struggles there. And Ryan Bourne wrote a book called Economics in One Virus, an introduction to economic reasoning through COVID-19. What we got wrong at the beginning, what hopefully we're smart enough to avoid in the future. That's all coming up on the Bill Kelly Podcast. Today on the Bill Kelly Show on 900 CHML. It's going to be busy at Queen's Park today. It's going to be active. There's a lot of spotlight on it. We are in day 31 of the outdoor restrictions, a place I call New Ontario, where no other province, no other territory, none of the 50 states, quite obviously, are imposing this level of non-data-based, non-science-based restrictions. To be perfectly honest, it goes beyond politics. For me, this is just about safety and health and right v. wrong. But something may happen in Queen's Park today. Our next guest hopes to change that. She is uh, the honorable and official leader of the opposition party and the Ontario New Democrats, Andrea Horvath, joining me on The Bill Kelly Show. Andrea, it's Greg Brady. Thanks for making the time for doing this on a busy day. I appreciate it. Oh, my pleasure, Greg. My pleasure. Why is this uh, a different day at Queen's Park? What are you hoping to introduce and accomplish today? Well, my one of my uh, MPPs, Sarah Singh from uh, Brampton Centre, has put a motion forward to be debated in the House this afternoon uh, about the opening up, safely opening up outdoor some of the outdoor amenities and uh, activities uh, for people to get out of the house, uh, get some exercise, get some outdoor fresh air uh, in a safe way uh, with family members. And so this is something that many experts have been calling for. The science table advised it. Public health officials are advising it. Uh, we have some, you know, uh, mayors of various communities are now chiming in as well. Uh, people are better off to be outdoors uh, than indoors. We know the virus spreads significantly indoors, not so outdoors. And people really do, with the nice weather here, need to have the permission and the information to safely uh, undertake outdoor uh, amenities and activities. I mentioned, Andrew, we're 31 days into this, and uh, and I think two things of it. One is is the uh, anger and and the emotion has carried through for all 31 of those days. For me, that Friday was the, was the worst day of the pandemic. We knew we needed to, to tighten things up. We knew we needed a lot of the indoor restrictions for businesses and whatnot for the stay at home order. But it was a remarkably disappointing day. What have you heard from constituents throughout these 31 days um, in terms of their anger, their emotion? And I'd ask you that because I'm a guy in my 40s, but I think about it more about my parents and what they can't do and my kids. I can hold out. I can hang on. That's great. But I worry about our kids. I sure worry about our seniors who did all the heavy lifting, did everything they were supposed to do all winter. And they see seniors everywhere else in North America doing things they can't. 
Yeah, I mean, it's it's, it's certainly a level of frustration that I'm hearing. Uh, a le- it's a level of anger. Uh, people are at. I mean, people were at their wits' end after the second wave. Who's kidding who? Uh, and then, of course, we opened a bit too quickly last time, and we uh, we didn't put in place the precautions, the extra uh, precautions that the science advisors, uh, the health advisors, were were suggesting, and so that walked us straight into the third wave uh, with the variants of concern. Uh, we we saw what's what's happened. And so this lockdown is a, is a frustration, I think, because folks realize that it didn't have to be this way. We would have had a third wave likely, but the extent to which uh, the the virus took off over the last number of weeks has been has been really something that was predicted and preventable. Uh, having said that, uh, folks are exhausted, right? I mean, they're tired, they're exhausted. Uh, you know, their, their mental health continues to deteriorate, particularly children, and as you I describe, older folks as well who have not been able to, you know, see their grandkids or see mm-hmm. their kids or or see each other really in terms of uh, friends, friends and uh, various other seniors' activities that have also. Been been put to, to the wayside, so it, it's it's tough for Ontarians, and, and it didn't have to be this tough. Uh, now we just got to we've got to tough it out for the next little while. But as the experts are providing the advice uh, to to give people a bit of a window, to give people a bit of a chance uh, to to you know to get outside and 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 be together in outdoor activities, it's time for the government to listen to what the experts are saying. It'll give folks a bit of a break. Andrea Horvath is the leader of Ontario's official opposition, uh, New Democrat leader. Let me ask you whether you need nine PC MPPs to go against the government here. I know there's I know there's cracks. I hear the noise. You do also. I know there's been more heat and phone calls and emails to MPP offices than for maybe anything else in the last month. Do you sense that also? Do you have any level of confidence? This has been a government that outside of a couple departures um, has pretty much stuck together on every issue. Yeah, I mean, there have been a couple of departures, as you mentioned. The thing I look to, though, is uh, all of us putting the pressure on the government at once. So, yes, the official opposition has that job, and we are doing it. Uh, but we've heard, as I said, we've heard from experts. We've heard from, uh, you know, um, municipal leaders. We've heard from public health. We've heard from the science table. We've heard from people. I mean, let's face it, we've heard from people uh, that uh, that this is something that they want to see happen. And when you have that much um, you know that much agreement, and the only you know person offside seems to be the premier. Uh, then he needs to take a second look at this, which is why we're putting putting the motion forward to add to that pressure. Uh, and it it it, it kind of reminds me of this. Uh, uh, paid sick days issue, right? I mean, we all kind of banded together. We put the pressure on, uh, and eventually the government had to climb down uh, from its position. Mind you, three paid sick days is is not what we need during a pandemic. We need much more than that. But at least it was something. And the government broke under the pressure. And so that's what we're trying to do here again. The Premier mentions that summer camps will be open yesterday. A lot of people were really surprised. It came very much out of nowhere. There wasn't a lot of clarification were you surprised to hear the premier say that? And it obviously has a lot of parents. It has camp owners um, confused, scrambling, not sure what it means. And, and there's a fear, of course, we want that for our kids. But when that time is safe, what was your reaction to what he said? I mean, I was shocked. And I don't think it helps anybody, whether it's parents, whether it's uh, owners of these, uh, of these camps. I don't think it helps anybody for the government or for the premier to just 
you know, talk out of his hat and just throw something out there uh, without a clear communication strategy, without, you know, without without giving people the information they need to know uh, to understand how it's going to work. I mean, are the camps going to be reduced in terms of numbers? Is it going to be 25%? Is it going to be 50%? Uh, Is it going to be overnight camps? Is it only going to be day camps? I mean, do you have to be vaccinated or not? I mean, it's just, there's just too many questions and it doesn't help. Yes, it gives people a glimmer of hope, but people, you know, it's human nature. You, you, you know, you hope you, you shoot for the stars, right? And then, and then unfortunately, often with this government, they put something out there that gets people, you know, excited. And, and then when the details start rolling in, it, it's a lunch bag letdown. And so, uh, you know, it's, it's not, it's not helpful. It, it, it's poor communications, which has plagued uh, this government from day one in terms of their response to this virus. And it just creates more confusion and uncertainty. Andrea Horvath, our guest on 900 CHML and 980 CFPL in London. I'm going to use the phrase talk out of your hat later on this week. You, you know, when they go low, we go high. That was I appreciate uh, I appreciate the uh, clarification on the, on the language there. You could have said something else um, when it comes to that. <laughs> when it comes to vaccines, um, Andrea, the policy ended today to send a higher percentage of vaccines to communities and towns where the numbers and the cases and the danger level is higher. It took a real battle, as you know, a lot of lot of medical professionals speaking out on shows like this, even just to just to put the heat on to get the province to do it for two weeks. Um, is it disappointing that they've stopped? It, it is disappointing, be, disappointing because once again, this is an example of the government not listening to the science. Uh, they, they do not listen to the science table. Uh, they base their decisions on who knows what, uh, and this has become a huge problem. And we've we've asked the premier uh, umpteen times, why are you not listening to the science? Whose advice are you actually taking? What happens when the science table, you know, makes recommendations and uh, and gives you direction in terms of where you where they think, as scientists, as the experts, uh, we we need to to go in terms of decisions. And and what we've seen, sadly, is the government, I guess, gets the information and then has cabinet meetings and caucus meetings, sometimes that, ask, that last uh, two days. And, and that's just, it's not right to, to politicize this stuff. And, and I think that's what's happening with the, uh, with the doses as well. If the, the strategy has been working, and it has, and the recommendation was to keep this going for four weeks, then the government should be keeping it going for four weeks. I mean, there's, there's really no excuse not to. Uh, and the sooner the hotspots clear up, the numbers just tank, like they'll go straight down. And then it's good for the rest of us. Do you know what I mean? But yeah. if, we're, if we're making our decisions based on the numbers, and we know the numbers are being driven by particular communities, then why wouldn't we focus on those communities and, and get the numbers down? So, you know, and, and also then, of course, take the pressure off of our hospitals and off of our ICUs, which then helps to get some of those surgeries and procedures back on track, because that's another, I mean, that's a looming nightmare. And we know people are already not getting what they need, and in some cases, uh, not having the life-saving procedures that they need. And that's, that's really, really, that's troubling. What should we do with our AstraZeneca deliveries? It's getting debated a lot. We've got stock and we're getting more. Um, the United Kingdom saved so many lives by using it. There have been 49 clotting deaths in the UK. 28 million AstraZeneca doses were used. But I'd say this, and I think this is important for the audience too, none of them have been on the second dose. None of them. The communication's been spotty from the province. I'd argue not just at the provincial level, but at the federal level from NASI last week. What yep. should we do with people who've taken that that AZ dose, which includes the premier, which includes um, a lot of a lot of people in their forties and fifties? Includes me. 
Yeah. What do you <laughs> want? What do you want to happen for yourself? What do you want to happen for yourself then? What What should happen? No, no, for sure. I mean, I would I would roll up my my arm in a heart. I roll up my sleeve in a heartbeat and stick out my arm for my second job. And everybody that I've talked to that has had a first dose of AstraZeneca is pretty much saying the same thing. I don't disagree with you in, in your observation around NASI and the confusion uh, that uh, was uh, you know came from that conversation that uh, you know that when they talked about. The, the better choices of the vaccines. I mean, give me a break. It was really a, a big mistake for them to do that. And it doesn't make any sense whatsoever when, when you see the evidence, which is what you're talking about, right? I mean, you're, it's absolutely the case. We have the vaccines, get them in people's arms, use them. There'll be many, many people who would be interested in and willing, willing to take that, uh, that second dose of AstraZeneca. It should just be a matter of getting them to the pharmacies so we can start lining up safely and with our distance. <laughs> You mentioned the, uh, the the science table said get outside. So many doctors have said get outside. All, all these activities are safe. The province said that we want to reduce mobility. But uh, anecdotally, and I'm sure you've seen it and I'm sure you've heard it, people aren't staying at home. They're in parks. And that's great. And they're riding bikes in downtown Toronto. And that's great. Um, so there's one doctor that seems to stand in the way of this. If, if you become premier, will you immediately fire Dr. David Williams from his position? You've asked for his resignation. Will you fire him? Uh, we actually didn't support uh, when the government asked for uh, all party support to renew his uh, his contract we did not support it we didn't support it uh, there's just too it's just too um, confused it's he, he he's a poor communicator uh, but look he's Doug, Tor- Doug Ford's choice so at the end of the day uh, anything any uh, failings or uh, communications uh, deficits that uh, uh, Dr. Williams has or any refusals that he's He's made to uh, to stand up and actually, uh, you know, to provide the the leadership uh, that uh, somebody in his position should provide. That's all on Doug Ford. Uh, it, it's it's his guy, mm-hmm. and so yeah, we, we would certainly be looking at uh, at uh, that position and uh, and likely changing it up. So you wouldn't retain him. I, I don't see how any any government could. I don't see why mm-hmm. this government, why the Ford government did. Um, borders. The premier's talking about it a lot. I know some are criticizing it as a deflection. I know your party sees it as a deflection. I'm not going to say it's not, but I would also say there is data that shows the domestic borders more than the international borders are an issue. If you could speak to Justin Trudeau later today, would you have a message about the borders? Is there anything he should be doing differently? Well, I think we need to look at where there's been success in other jurisdictions. I mean, so this is one of the things that we haven't done very well is is take the lessons learned uh, in other parts of the world. And, and and yes, I mean, look, I, I think everybody would agree. You know, if there's something that can be done uh, further to make the borders more safe in terms of bringing the virus in, I don't think anybody would would disagree with that. Uh, but but really, the Ford government is using that as a way to uh, try to direct attention away from their own failings here in Ontario. Uh, I mean, you can recall, I think it was in the second wave when, when there was a, a kind of a regional approach taken, if you will. Uh, but, but those kinds of approaches, they really do rely on uh, restriction of movement. And I don't necessarily mean restriction of movement in a, in a kind of a militaristic kind of state, but you've got to give people 
the communications uh, uh, tools, and you have to you have to actually mm. let people know what the expectations are to reduce that kind of travel uh, to uh, prevent the the variants of concern from from getting from an example for example from downtown Toronto or Hamilton to mm. you know to Thunder Bay or to uh, uh, you know to any other part of the country or the province, and and that's not being done. And so none of these things sits in isolation, right? I mean, you, you, they they all kind of rely on on one another in terms of the, um, you know, the policy levers here. I know you're tight for time. I got 60 seconds. I want to ask you about school because parents are talking about it in September. We're getting to the point where we might be able to vaccinate kids. Should we consider mandatory vaccinations for school? Students are suspended if they don't have an MMR vaccine or a chickenpox vaccine. This is a pretty important crisis we've been through for 18 months. Shouldn't students have to prove they've been vaccinated for COVID to go back in the fall? Yeah, you know, that's a really good question. And when this first came up a couple of days ago, uh, early last week, uh, that's kind of like I'm a parent. My son's mm-hmm. 28 now, mind you. But I remember the the drill, right? I mean, there were there there was an expectation that your kids have their vaccines. The public health department was responsible for, uh, you know, providing them. And you had your little yellow card that to make sure that you're doing that to, in a timely fashion. Uh, and your, your family physician often was part of that process as well. And so I don't see why this would be any different. Uh, certainly the other kind of uh, vaccines, as you, you were mentioning, mm-hmm. some of the specifics of uh, which ones they are, but uh, you know, for, under certain special circumstances, there, there are exemptions granted, uh, allergies, various things like that. Uh, but overall, I mean, this should just be another one of the vaccines that's part of the, you know, the, the school you know, requirement. Um, I thank you so much for your time. Um, what you're proposing today is something I'm absolutely on side with. Uh, I, I think, that, again, I think this goes so far beyond politics, but I appreciate your time and, and wish you luck today. Thank you very much for making it for me. My pleasure, Greg. Take care. Bye-bye. Andrea Horvath is the leader of the official opposition in Ontario and a member of the Ontario New Democratic Party. You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show podcast on 900 CHML. I want to play a real quick clip before we talk to Bruce Arthur from the Toronto Star. Uh, John Bell uh, re-asked AstraZeneca. He's a professor of medicine, Sir John Bell from Oxford University. Talked to Evan Solomon on CTV News yesterday about our AstraZeneca policy. And um, it's been greatly debated. There's a lot of people that have opinions on it. I know two things. One, he's a lot more you know, on the ground level. He's a lot more in the trenches with the testing on this vaccine than, let's say, oh, I don't know, Dr. David Williams. But I also know it's his vaccine. So there's going to be a defense mechanism about utilizing it. But you heard Andrea Horvath say it earlier in the show. She would take that second AstraZeneca dose because there's no clotting on that second dose. There isn't. Here's what he said about how Canada has handled the pandemic handled vaccines and handled specifically the AstraZeneca Oxford vaccine. Vaccine certainly in populations of people over the age of forty or fifty is that the incidents of these rare events they are very very rare. The Indian strain has now arrived in the UK. It will r- arrive in Canada if it hasn't already. Probably already has. And at my last look, you guys are three point six percent vaccinated with two doses. So just wait for that one to rip through the Canadian population. And then the problems you've had with these very rare clotting events will look pretty insignificant next to Well, I think that reflects the whole Canadian approach to vaccines generally, and that is acting on a lot of hearsay, not facts. So we're doing the heterologous 
boosting experiment here in Oxford, 800 people in an arm, Pfizer, AstraZeneca, Astra, Pfizer, AstraZeneca, Pfizer. And our experience to date is that it produces pretty severe reactogenicity, so severe that we don't think that's going to be viable. And by that, I mean, you get your second dose. If you flip it over, you'll get really sick. So I would not advise that. Uh, and the second dose of AstraZeneca, which we've now put in to many, many millions of people who had a first dose of AstraZeneca, we're not sure we can even find a single case of clotting problems. So, you know, bad idea. This needs to be data driven. Okay, that's Sir John Bell from Oxford University. Bottom lining it, 28 million doses have gone into arms in the United Kingdom. It's it's saved their society. Did you see uh, the FA Cup on Saturday? Any of it, Leicester and Chelsea? Tons of fans there. It was great, wonderful. That's amazing. But if you're going to clot, if you're going to have a reaction to this, if you're going to have VITT, you're going to have it on your first dose, not your second. That seems to be what the data uh, lays out. So I want to talk about that and a few other things uh, with my next guest columnist from the Toronto Star, award-winning sports writer Bruce Arthur. It's great to have you on. When you listen to John Bell, I mentioned two things there, Bruce. One, obviously, um, that's that's like a manager defending how his team played. It's his vaccine. <laughs> it's his university. But the data does seem to bear this out. And I know you've mentioned it, and, and I've heard from people, too, that say, boy, I didn't get a great reaction. Well, then, you know, you should go see a doctor post that first uh, AZ vaccine. Have you has have your has your opinion moved much in the last seven to ten days about what we should do with our remaining doses of AZ? It's a really interesting question and a really complex question. I've talked to a lot of people who know a lot more about this than I do about it. Um, what Sir John Bell said there wasn't entirely accurate, or at least it was slightly distorted. Like the idea that mixing and matching AstraZeneca with an mRNA vaccine. Yes, what they found is that there was an excess reaction so you feel sicker uh but it usually clears within two days it doesn't seem to have any lasting effect it doesn't seem to have any deleterious effect at least that's in early trials we still have to wait for final uh data on that but so far it doesn't seem to be something that is worrying anybody any of the experts that i talk to and the the clotting on the second dose like that to me is the interesting one it doesn't. What he said is we can't find any clotting on the second dose. I'm not sure that's entirely accurate. I believe the the data that I saw was one in one million. So it's still it's vanishingly small. Um, and so with second doses, I think we should do something with them. We shouldn't just let them expire. So either you give them second doses to people who've already had AstraZeneca with the trust that the chance of a clotting incident will be vanishingly low. Or we donate them to a country that needs them more. India would come to mind. Uh, because at this point, letting vaccines go to waste would be not quite... Hmm. I mean, it'd, it'd be a bit of a crime, right? And in, in, in a world where we complain about vaccines here in Canada, there's an enormous percentage of the world that doesn't have any at all or almost none. And so with AstraZeneca, it doesn't work as well in Canada, I think, for first doses when you consider the risk factor of it, the, yeah. the clotting disease or the clotting uh, kind of problem, um, because our epidemic isn't out of control. Epidemic's a lot more out of control in a lot of other places. You see today the news, I, I want to get your reaction, that will open general eligibility for everyone 18-plus in the province. Many doctors and, and uh, you know, you put the same smart people in a lot of your columns that, that I try and put on the radio, the people I trust, 
some of those people say we should be getting second doses to 80 plus. We should be getting them to, um, you know, people that, that go visit husbands and wives and, and, and parents in long term care or our community dwelling seniors. Are we moving too fast on on 18 plus for people that really don't have very bad outcomes with COVID when we should be getting other second doses? Well, I mean, part of it is we're not going to have enough vaccine for all the 18 year olds in Ontario. That's pretty clear, right? Like we just mm-hmm. don't have that many. Um, and that being said, I think that, again, that's an interesting point. The hotspot strategy to me has been the only time in the entire pandemic where the vulnerable in Ontario have been protected to the same degree as those of us, people like me, who can self-isolate easily and don't have to work uh, in a shared environment. It's the first time that there's been a level footing, something like it, in that 50% of extra Pfizer vaccines over the last two weeks went to places like Peel, to Jane and Finch, to Scarborough. And you saw, like, the Thorncliffe vaccine uh, clinic yesterday. They did 10,000 doses. It's incredible. Uh, That's ending today. So that's something, that's somewhere where I'd like them to continue. I still think that even with the increased Pfizer we're getting this week, that is a huge vaccination win and a win for equity and a win for a lot of people because that's where the fire is hottest. When you look at the overall vaccination strategy, we should be prioritizing by risk. Still, And if it's harder to get those 80 plus community dwellers or 70 or 60 plus, then we should be hunting them almost yeah. like we should be in India. I know I have a friend who, who is a little bit familiar with that. Um, they send people up and down the streets, vaccination teams, right? Knock on the door. Who hears over 50? Um, we could do that. And we've done it in apartment buildings, which has been fantastic. Um, that's something that I think I'd like to see more of a focus on. This feels like opening the door so everyone feels like they have a chance, and there's just not enough vaccine yet. Um, and with the relatively low hesitancy rates, I don't know. I still think that in terms of equity, we still have a long ways to go. I think the last two weeks were fabulous, and I wish the province would extend that. That, to me, is my number one concern. Bruce Arthur is our guest, the Toronto Star. What do you make of some of the things we're seeing in the states with regard to mask mandates? And naturally, there's there's you know, that we, we've seen we saw it from the beginning of the pandemic pre vaccine. There's going to be people that start their video. Rick Schroeder did it yesterday. Right. The former child star. They're going to start videotaping and trying to humiliate the nice guy at Costco. But but I'm watching carefully. I don't think we'll will be quite that way. And I would say that the pandemic hasn't been quite as politicized in our country. There's politics and everything. Of course there is. You probably hear from people going, what's with your communist government not letting you outside in Ontario? And I'm like, oh, they're not very communist when you consider some of the other policies. But what are you seeing in the states that that might be a a harbinger of of what we'll deal with when when we get that far ahead, good or bad? I, I agree with you that I don't think it has been nearly as politicized here, right? Like the culture war is not as advanced in Canada mm-hmm. as it is in the United States, and that's a good thing. And it's something that I think is a country we need to watch for as we go forward. Um, in terms of what we're going to get, I think you, you've seen in the United States that there are still kind of there are some fights um, over how they're going to go forward in terms of what they open, right? Like there was 50% of uh, a crowd in a hockey game in Florida the other night. Florida, I believe, has about a third of the the whole state fully vaccinated. Like, so they're going to push ahead in ways that I don't think Canada is going to push. In terms of masks, I think we've had actually pretty great compliance in this country. Like, I think the anti-maskers are a pretty lonely crowd. I don't worry about that becoming a culture war symbol at all in Canada, and thank goodness for that. 
Because one, it doesn't, who cares if someone else is wearing a mask outdoors or indoors? Like, honestly, yeah, that does yeah. not affect your life in any way. There was one Toronto Sun columnist who had this tweet about, about seeing someone double masking outside <laughs> and then judging them in a way that, oh, I, again, to me, it's just malignant. Like, let people live their lives. If people want to wear masks the rest of their lives, it doesn't affect me personally. Um, I don't think, again, the culture war aspect, I don't think we're going to have a big a deal about. We are going to get to a point where we're going to have to loosen restrictions and let people live their lives in a, in a kind of more human way than what we've got right now, especially in Ontario. Um, that is going to, be, it's going to be a real trick, and Doug Ford is now saying we're going to open up really soon. I just hope we're not repeating the mistakes that we've made already and that without adequate vaccination in certain communities that we don't unleash a fourth wave, even if it's a wavelet, um, and make people suffer unnecessarily. Like That, to me, is the big question going forward. In the United States, they've just kind of decided we're going to go for it. And in warm weather, especially where you can be outside, they can get away with it. And I think there have been some, I know they're ahead for fully vaccinated people, but there have been some admirable aspects of that. I, I you know, I, I, a lot of people sent me Lisa McLeod's comments about the CFL last week. Now, I'll read you the, 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 the part that really bothered me. Uh, she's concerned how comfortable many Ontarians would be with congregating in public. Here's the quote. That's a fear I have, not just for sports, but also for live music. And while there will be some committed fans who want to get into those stands, there are a number of people in Ontario that are still far too reticent given the public health restrictions. But she's talking about CFL games in the fall. She says I, 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 she finds it hard to believe fans would be allowed into stadiums for CFL games. You know the league and I know the league. They ain't playing without fans. It's economic suicide. They're going to lose their shirts anyway. They'll just lose less of their shirt if they can get nine, ten thousand 10,000 in a stadium. So some of us, when we're fully vaccinated by August and September, want to go back to those things. And if other people don't, that's fine too. But you got to let those of us that want to go back, go back, right? Well, and one, this brings up the idea of vaccine passports, right? Like one thing they have in Israel, Israel is the most vaccinated major country on earth right now, right? It's the one that, that people point to and say, that's how everyone should have done it. Not that anyone, like almost no one else could have. Um, but Israel has what's called a green pass. So a green pass, it's actually really simple. If you go to the website for it, um, it tells you what you can do and what you can't do. Right. And so if you have it on your phone or you have like a piece of mm-hmm. paper, piece of paper would be easier to forge. So I think that's harder. I think you want it on phones, but then there's an equity issue anyway. Um, we're going to need some kind of shared basis in reality going forward. And the problem you're going to get with, with schools, the problems you're going to get with movie theaters, if you want full uh, courage and confidence in the economy, if you want people to emerge from what's been probably in big ways and small, a traumatizing year for a lot of people. I think having proof of vaccination is actually a big deal. I know the civil liberties people don't like it, but if you have a shared society, you should have responsibilities. And that to me is the big question. If you want, if if we're going to have 85 to 90% of the country vaccinated, I think by the end of it, if we can, if we're diligent enough in our, kind of and our hunting of people to vaccinate because the the hesitancy levels are pretty low so if we have 85 percent of our country vaccinated by the start of september or early september of course you could have cfl games but can you trust the other people in the stadium and that's where a vaccine passed yeah yeah uh bruce i gotta leave it there thanks so much love your work thanks for spending some time with me greg my pleasure man uh bruce arthur from the toronto star you're listening to the Bill Kelly Show podcast on 900 CHML. We're going to talk Middle East politics. Um, and I will say this. This is where you generally don't go. 
I mentioned being a poli-sci student, and I took a Middle East politics class in my third year, second year. I took a Middle East politics class my second year. I took a lot of American politics-based courses. The Middle East politics class, as was taught then um, in 1992, in second year, could not have been taught this way now. Um, I thought the professor played it very up the middle. Um, but I would tell you that there were uh, a lot of Jewish students that didn't like it. Okay. Like we're having a conversation here. I'm speaking frankly. There were a lot of Jewish students that didn't like the tone and the, uh, basis of lectures from the professor. Now I think there'd be complaints, but it was an open dialogue. Then I want to play you a clip from John Oliver in just a second from his show last week tonight with John Oliver last night. Mandy Patinkin is well-known, an actor, a, a musician, right? He was on Homeland for years, okay? That crazy Carrie Bradshaw, yeah, that Mandy Patinkin would try and, you know, keep her in line. Good luck. She's nuts. So anyway, he writes this about, um, and, and he's Jewish, and he writes this about the conflict yesterday on social media. And I think this first paragraph is really important. I want to emphasize that criticism of the nation-state of Israel is not the same as criticism of Judaism, Jewish, or Israeli people, much the same way as criticism of the American government is not the same as criticizing American people. Friends, this is a dark moment in Israel and Palestine. I find myself, as I have so many times, struggling to name what feels right or helpful or necessary amidst an escalation of violence there. Within our community, there's a wide diversity of connection or lack thereof to that land and its residents and a broad range of perspectives on what is happening now and what precipitated this moment. Like all of us, I am praying for peace, for a de-escalation of violence and for safety and security for all residents of Israel and Palestine. My heart breaks over the killing of dozens of Palestinians in Gaza in the past few days, including 14 children. My heart breaks as well for the two Israeli women in Ashkelon killed by a rocket from Gaza, and I mourn with their families and communities. I think that's a really, really important distinction to make, and it's something that's lost on some but not on others, in that criticizing Israeli foreign policy and aggression is certainly not the same as being anti-Semitic. Do some people who are anti-Semitic constantly criticize Israel? Yeah, absolutely. But is that part and parcel? Does that go hand in hand all the time? Absolutely not. John Oliver went a step further than Mandy Patinkin, as you think he might, and said this on his show last evening. It's like Hamas fired over a thousand rockets towards Israel this week, and that is reprehensible. But, and I realize this is the most load-bearing conjunction in history, but the majority of those rockets thankfully didn't reach their target for a very clear reason. The casualties and the damage would have been greater, but for Israeli interceptor rockets, the so-called Iron Dome, which blew most of the incoming missiles to pieces. Yeah, Israel has a so-called Iron Dome. And I know, what if we blew up the rockets with more rockets? Sounds like something someone drunkenly wrote down on a napkin once, but it is a real military defense system that really works. And I also know not all the rockets were shot down. Israeli civilians were killed this week, which is terrible. But the point is, this isn't tit for tat. 
There is a massive imbalance when it comes to the two sides' weaponry and capabilities. While most of the rockets aimed toward Israeli citizens this week were intercepted, Israel's airstrikes were not. They hit their targets, including a house in a refugee camp, a building housing the Associated Press and Al Jazeera, and this 13-story office and apartment building. And while Israel insisted that there were military targets in that building and that they destroyed it as humanely as possible, even warning people to evacuate beforehand, for the record, destroying a civilian residence sure seems like a war crime, regardless of whether you send a courtesy heads-up text. That's uh, John Oliver from last week tonight with John Oliver. What can't be debated, and it's a very difficult issue with centuries of history. It is the conflict. It is the is this political hot potato, like I said, that you just don't bring up at cocktail parties. It is really difficult to get 10 people in a room and all of them to have the same opinion about the conflict between Israel and Palestine. It is. But the human cost, it's not even close. It's not even close. From 2008 to 2020, 5,590 Palestinians have been killed in armed conflict, 250 Israelis, 25 times the number of Palestinian deaths, and that's only going to grow. So there are numerous calls across the planet uh, for a ceasefire right now. I want to bring on Oral Brown, uh, professor of international relations, political science at U of T, senior member of the Monk School of Global Affairs. Professor uh, Braun, thank you very much for making the time for me. I appreciate it. Thank you. When I say that, when I lay that out, uh, it, it is one of those hot button uh, topics. I, I don't envy. Um, I mentioned a, a professor of mine uh, handling a Middle East policy course in 1992 when I went to Western and uh, and he had to tread carefully. It's not an easy thing and, and probably is even harder now, 20 years later, um, teaching it in a university environment, isn't it? Yes, uh, it is a difficult issue. It always has been. And uh, it is hard to find a balance to get that kind of perspective, to understand the larger issues. And uh, now we have comedians doing uh, uh, analysis uh, uh, of uh, major geopolitical problems. But it also tells you to the extent that uh, Hamas's strategy has been absolutely brilliant and they're winning because we characterize this as uh, a fight between Israel which is viewed as a democratic state around the world, and Hamas, which has been designated a terrorist organization by all of the members of the EU, by Canada, by mm-hmm. United States, by Japan, as a fight between Israel and Palestine rather than between Israel and a terrorist organization. So uh, the way our conversation has been shaped, the kind of things that you are saying, indicates how Hamas which has brutalized its own people, kills gays, kills Christians, has been so successful in creating this impression that even when they start something, even when they fire thousands of rockets and they do not manage to kill enough Israelis, then uh, it is a count of, well, how many people were killed, rather than asking the simple question, what would happen if a terrorist group across uh, the border from the United States would fire rockets at Toronto, and they would only manage to kill 10 people, then we'd say, well, our defense systems worked, and consequently, there's a disproportionality. Uh, So uh, I think this is one of the things that we also need to really understand. This is a crucial perspective, that it matters how a conflict starts. It matters what intent is. The fact that you cannot carry out that intent also matters. One 
can look at the charter of Hamas, look at what they wish to do. Because if you say, let's have a compromise, well, the Palestinian Authority was willing to talk about a compromise, a two-state solution. Hamas, which controls Gaza, which killed members of Fatah, is refusing to allow the existence of Israel, period. They have stated very clearly that their intent is not a two-state solution. Their intent is the eradication of the state of Israel. So when you say, well, these rockets, because they're Iron Dome, it's disproportionate. They want to kill so many people. Well, it's not for uh, wanting to kill more people. It just so happens they have not been successful. But if they would have the right kind of arsenal and they're getting more uh, rockets, because you notice now they were able to fire more than 3,000 rockets. Right. If they had the capacity, they would kill every Israeli. Israel has the capacity, possibly even nuclear weapons. They could kill everyone in Gaza. They have not. So when you have somebody like John Oliver say, well, you know, uh, Israel said there were military targets inside that building, but it's still a war crime. I'm wondering what exactly is his background in international law? How does he determine that? Because in international law, if a building is used for military purposes and it has civilians in it, that is a misuse of the protection of civilians. Now, this should be... It is, it is. Let me ask you, though, I think this is an important distinction to make, and I really want to hear your answer. How could a building that housed the Associated Press and and Al Jazeera and had housed media members for a decade and a half who say they didn't see ever any sign of, of that building being used for or by terrorists... How would that be? How would that be feasible that journalists wouldn't know um, an entire 13th floor building wouldn't be being used for terrorist purposes? It's an excellent question. Uh, the Atlantic Magazine published an article in 2014, I believe, that uh, members of the AP were intimidated and brutalized by Hamas, and this was not reported. So uh, we would need to get into that. We do not know what happens in the basement of that building, but even the United Nations, for example, came up with evidence eventually that some schools in Gaza were used their basements and so on to store armaments, to store rockets. I believe that. Yeah, I, I, I would believe that. So how yeah. is it that the teachers did not know? How is it that the school principal did not report it? Yeah, I, I, I would believe that. Let me ask you if you think... The distinction between Hamas now and let's go let's go to the mid 80s, Professor, the, the PLO Arafat years. What has changed? Because you kind of you, you kind of talked about almost the, the PR um, of of Hamas worldwide. And no doubt um, the Palestinian people are victimized because of Ham- Hamas's aggression and terrorism and their policies. But what has changed in 35 years since since Yasser Arafat was on the scene? There have been attempts at various peace plans, and uh, Bill Clinton, for example, thought that the Camp David Accords came very close to having an actual agreement. Maps were drawn, but this is according to Bill Clinton, a Democratic president, who said that Arafat walked away from it, that this was a great opportunity. And so one has to ask the question, at what point uh, are the Palestinian leaders willing to negotiate a genuine a genuine settlement. You know, what you had said about the criticism of Israel, 
uh, and uh, you cited uh, a Jewish singer and Man- Manny Patinkin, and, and, and the actor. actor. Sure. Yeah, yeah. Uh, Manny Patinkin, that Christian Israel is not anti-Semitic. In any democratic country, can and should be criticized for policies that are inadequate. And one might say, well, perhaps the Israelis were not forthcoming enough, uh, and that would be a criticism that is perfectly legitimate, again, looking at, at the facts. But what has happened is that instead of negotiations, uh, the Palestinians have chosen instead to engage in a vast propaganda kind of uh, approach to this where you have a double standard, where you have demonization, delegitimization. That is different from, from criticism, and in that case, it's very difficult to have that kind of negotiations. And in this last con- uh, conflict, the way this started is that Mahmoud Abbas, who has not had the elections in more than a decade, so has been in power, is 85 years old, is clinging to power in Ramallah, heading the Palestinian Authority, was going to hold the elections. Because his regime is so very corrupt, he is highly unpopular. Right. There's a good chance that if there were free elections, he was going to lose that. So there's evidence I engaged in a kind of diversionary tactic to say, well, there's a danger to the Al-Aqsa Mosque, that there are other issues, thinking that this would somehow excuse him for postponing elections. Hamas saw an opportunity because they were very angry that these elections were postponed since they thought that they would have a good chance of ousting Abbas. They went into that gap. So oddly enough, ironically and tragically, this is an inter-Palestinian fight, not just an uh, Israeli-Hamas fight. And one of the things that you must have gathered from studying the Middle East in that course, that this is like playing three-dimensional chess. So things are never exactly how they appear. There are layers and layers upon layers. And this is why it's so essential to go back to the fundamentals and ask the question, who began the violence? Uh, What are the motivations? What are the ultimate goals? Uh, What are the prospects for peace? What does each side uh, want? What are they willing to settle for? I, w- I want to get I want to get one more answer in from you. Um, Ali Velshi on MSNBC, Toronto born host and commentator, said this on the air on Saturday. It was considered a watershed moment. Palestinians are at best third class citizens in the nation of their birth. The idea that it is even remotely controversial to call what Israel has imposed on Palestinians as apartheid is laughable. What's fair or unfair about that statement? Well, what would be the question? Would it be Palestinians who are living? within the pre-67 borders of Israel, because those Palestinians who are Israeli citizens uh, have been able to be on high courts, in one instance even on the Supreme Court. They serve in parliament. They uh, are surgeons, doctors at hospitals. They have important uh, positions, something like 47% of pharmacists in Israel are, uh, are Palestinian Arabs. And so if he made that statement about uh, Palestinian uh, Arabs who live within Israel, that statement would be an incredible distortion of what the reality is. Now, is he talking about uh, Palestinians who live in Gaza? Well, Mm -hmm. Israel has pulled out of Gaza, and they are controlled by uh, Hamas. So 
how would they be third-class citizens when Israel does not control them? Okay. In the I, 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 the- I got I to, gotta, uh, Professor, I got to leave it there. I'm so tight for time, but this has been really insightful and helpful, and I hope we get to chat again about it. Okay. Thank you very much for, uh, for making the time. Oral Braun, Professor of International Relations, Political Science at the University of Toronto. You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show podcast on 900 CHML. I'm eager to chat with uh, the author of our next book. He's been a great and valuable follow on Twitter as well. The book is called Economics in One Virus, an introduction to economic reasoning through COVID-19. That author is Ryan Bourne, and he joins me now on the Bill Kelly Show. Ryan, it's Greg Brady. Thanks very much for making the time. I appreciate it. Great. It's uh, an honor to be with you. You're in. Uh, you're set up in Washington D.C. You're writing a book on COVID nineteen and a lot about um, where you know where we fell short, especially in those early days. With a virus that's continuing to go on, there had to be challenges writing. You probably finished a lot of this book before we even any of us started getting vaccinated. I would guess. Yeah, there's always a concern that your book is going to be overtaken by events. So I tried to hedge uh, in looking to the future, but I think what you know, what really I was attempting to do was introduce people to economics through the case study of COVID-19. And then as I began writing the book, what I realized was a lot of the public health mistakes that that I think we made and kind of objectively identifiable quite often stemmed from very faulty economic reasoning. So, you know, the failure to um, take early and evasive action in the face of an exponential growth um, of cases and, and subsequent deaths you know, is a key example. And the fact that through the pandemic, there's been a lot of regulations, particularly um, in regards to medical innovations like tests and vaccines, um, that by holding up uh, the introduction of things that could have mitigated this sooner, um, had costs those regulations that vastly exceeded the benefits. So I think you can apply sound economic thinking uh, to lots of things that have happened through this pandemic. Your book goes through some of the, the moral and ethical uh, concepts of, I, I suppose I could say, uh, risk mitigation versus the economy and uh, and how we, you know, how we make a distinction in terms of how many lives are worth um, a painful, lengthy lockdown. You're probably well aware in Ontario how very much lockdown we are right now. And it's to it's to free up, um, you know, an, an over how would I put it, an overexposed hospital uh, system and free up ICU beds and spots. So when I when I say all that, was there any government that was properly prepared to weigh that balance? Uh, The U.S. obviously wasn't ready at first a year ago at this time. Well, there are obviously some countries that have done much better in handling this virus. Overwhelmingly, they appear to be um, the East Asian countries that had experience with SARS and MERS, which proved to be similar enough in terms of um, the transferable lessons. So those countries tended to have a lot of private testing ready to go. They understood the importance of contact tracing in in terms of being able to identify infectious individuals, get them out of the community, and so um, mitigate the spread of the virus that way. For other countries, you know, as soon as this gets um, deep into the community, the trade-offs are much, much thornier as you have suggested. And you do have to weigh up um, the the potential benefits of things like lockdowns in terms of mitigating death risks. And obviously, human lives are extraordinarily valuable and weigh that up against the short term impacts, not just on economic activity, but also on people's liberties to engage in a lot of socialising activity. Um, I think the the main thing that I would say about that is that um, if you do suppress the virus, 
um, and you do and you do manage to um, do it well and effectively and get prevalence of the disease pretty low. Um, you only really lock in those benefits if from then on um, you have a strategy to keep it under control, whether that be in the early stages, having that contact tracing and testing to, to make sure it didn't bounce back and you had like a meaningful second or, or even third wave or now with the vaccines. Now, we've got a real opportunity now with the vaccines, obviously, um, uh, to, to end the most acute stage of this pandemic. Uh, so there is a kind of obvious strategy for getting out of this from here. Uh, but a lot of governments around the world prior to that kind of suppressed the virus and then opened things up again. And in some countries leaned into the opening up and subsidized a bunch of activity to get people out spending. And so in some ways, I think certain countries, particularly the United Kingdom, accentuated the waves of this virus rather than, than mitigating them. I was going to ask that about where the UK is at right now. Um, there are there's a, there's openings today, as a matter of fact, regarding indoor sports and an indoor dining. Obviously, pubs open, and and if if, a, if your pub had a patio, that was that was a great benefit over the last month or so. We see people at the FA Cup between Leicester and Chelsea on Saturday, and we're a little envious in Canada, to be blunt. When when we talk about Boris Johnson and his popularity and balancing that economics against the safety of his citizens. Has he has he earned credit uh, in the last six months that obviously he was getting just pilloried in the summer um, of last year for either the virus raging or how locked down? It seemed like he couldn't make anybody happy. Yeah, one of the interesting features of this pandemic, I think, is um, how parochial a lot of the media write-ups in each country um, is. Now, obviously, the UK had a horrendous outbreak last year and still has amongst developed countries, one of the worst overall, overall death rates in the world. I think what the UK government realised pretty early on was that the, in a pandemic which has so such high costs in terms of lost lives, lost liberties, lost economic activity, the faster you can get the vaccines into as many arms as possible, um, the better. And uh, so they embraced this first doses, first strategy. They spread out the gap between um, people getting the first dose and the second dose so they could get as many first doses um, as possible. And as a result, you know, relative to, to most other countries, they're way ahead in terms of uh, the vaccinations and have, you know, 95 to 100 percent of uh, the elderly, um, those most at risk vaccinated. Now, obviously, a lot of other countries were a lot slower off the mark. I've seen recently in Canada, you guys appear to be kind of rapidly um catching up to the United States. So things look a bit better on the vaccine front now. Mm. But you know, this is a key economic point that we've seen time again in the pandemic. Um, this, Given the way this virus spreads and given the overwhelmingly large costs to our lives and economic activity, the faster you can bring forward the end of this pandemic through the vaccinations, you know, that brings tremendous overall benefits to society. And the UK seemed to recognise that last year. In part, I think it was the necessity of being the mother of invention. They did have such bad outcomes and such a bad outlook in winter that they realised that the vaccines were the only conceivable way out. So that brought a sense of urgency. Mm. But um, I just think around the world, we should have seen much, much more urgency than we have on vaccines, not just in terms of the actual rollout, but being willing to invest pretty significantly to overcome some of the bottlenecks we've seen in the supply chains, too. Mm -hmm.
Ryan Bourne is our guest. The book is called Economics in One Virus, an Introduction to Economic Reasoning Through COVID-19. I will tell you, you do not have to be an economics genius to enjoy the book and uh, and actually have it speak to you in, in our collective experiences. Last question I have for you is whether or not we have learned enough. Um, and, and let's go, I, I guess, to where we are in, in North America and our culture. There are people that say we've learned enough that we'll be so much better prepared for the next vaccine. But you know when people you know, escape a, a tragedy or, or a near tragedy or a close call, Ryan, often in our own lives, we say, well, that was really fortunate, but we keep doing the same things. That can be about diet or safety or exercise or smoking or anything. And we often say, well, I dodged a bullet there. Yeah, we dodged a bullet. How can we be more prepared the next time round? And do you think our politicians will be? Well, I think we have a tendency as human beings to often fight the last war. So I suspect that if a virus with many of the similar features to COVID-19 hit in, say, five to 10 years time, then we probably would be better prepared. And there would be, you know, we, we'd relax the regulations on testing quicker. We would ramp up vaccine production uh, pretty quickly. The problem is, of course, um, the next crisis is invariably very different in its contours uh, to this one. And generally, we have a problem in that human beings and governments in particular seem to find it Mm -hmm. extremely difficult to think about um, low probability, high risk events. And I I worry that we'll spend a whole bunch of time investing in the capacity for things that could have fought COVID-19. And perhaps we won't think about the general preparedness we need in terms of having that adaptive, uh, flexible bureaucracy for dealing with uh, crises that could look very different. That's well put. Yeah, we're, we're certainly we're always ready on the on the military side. And certainly certainly in the United States, we are uh, for an instantaneous attack. And yet this was an instantaneous attack of a different variety. And, and we got caught with uh, I'll put it this way. Very few clothes on. I bought the book. I really enjoyed it. I recommend other people do as well. Thank you for writing it. Thank you for coming on with me. And I hope we get to chat again. No, thank you so much. This has been great. You got it. Ryan Bourne. The book is Economics in One Virus, an introduction to economic reasoning through COVID-19. The Bill Kelly Show, weekdays from 9 to noon on 900 CHML. Hey, it's Craig Brady. Hope you enjoyed it. The Bill Kelly Show podcast is available wherever you get your podcasts from. Thank you again for listening. Don't forget to subscribe to the podcast. It's free so you never miss an episode and make sure you rate and review. And I'll be back with another one tomorrow.